So uh, welcome to Fade of Mates, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is episode four, book four of the series Dark Needs at Night's Edge, um, which is a very controversial one we, we discovered. Yeah, it's really interesting. Lots of people don't really like this one. But they're wrong. They are wrong, of course. <laughs> um, it's I I remember reading this the first time around. I remember really liking it the first time around. And then suddenly, like now, this hero is just my pure id. So when I came back oh, around yeah. to it this time, I was like, oh, yeah, Cressley, this is my jam. Um, so anyway, this is the story. Well, we we discover ghosts exists in, in this book. Well, and to be fair, so does Conrad. <laughs> this, <laughs> right? I mean, she's not, she's still, ghosts are a human phenomenon, he explains to her. And so one of the things I really liked about this is um, we really get a, um, a human problem mixed up with a lore problem in this one. And I think... Um, there's a lot of really cool things that happen in this one because of it. Yeah, because honestly, no lore person has ever really had cause to hang out with a ghost or be interacted, interact with a ghost. Right. Why would they? I mean, and that's the thing. Like, we assume ghosts are, like, otherworldly. But to people in the lore, ghosts are just... It, they're human problems. <laughs> yeah, it's a human... Exactly. It's a human problem. Um, but what's really interesting about this as a concept, uh, you know, as somebody who... I, I've said before, I don't read a huge amount of paranormal. Like, I feel like I've read the big series because I've read the big series. Um, and I haven't really spent a lot of time in the weeds of paranormal. But my instinct is to say that oftentimes when we're building characters um, and building conflict in romance in paranormal, often the human character, the human heroine or the human hero, mostly heroine, um, is sort of a go-to conflict, right? Because immortal plus human equals conflict, in general. Right. But we don't see humans at all, really, until we see Naomi in the past in her human form before she dies. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, the only other humans were in the previous book, and they were basically like cannon fodder for Bowen freaking out in the, you know. <laughs> oh, right. The um, the, the gorillas, gorillas. In, the, in the jungle. Yeah. I mean, so they're, they're not like real characters, right? She's our first real character. He's a human. So maybe we should give like a little plot overview. Um, do you want to do it? Sure. You should do it. I got a little lost the one time I tried it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to. I'm happy to, to be the person who talks about these bananas books. So we begin in the past. We begin in the 20s um, at a with a, a woman who we have not met before who is a dancer. We, we know she's a dancer. We know she's a performer. Um, we know she is French. Her name is Naomi. And um, she is in a big house in New Orleans, outside of New Orleans. Um, and she loves her house. And she, there's a party happening. And what we know is that she is afraid of her um, ex-fiancé, who she broke it off with, because he's truly awful and abusive. 
And um, she is there's a big party downstairs and she is dressed to the nines and she enters the party. And of course, as is wont to do with women and men, um, this ex-fiance turns up and stabs her and kills her dead. You know what I was thinking, actually, as I as I read this and this is just like the prologue, right, that now, sadly, with the many shootings that we get by men in America and almost within days or hours, we discover that this man had like a history of domestic violence every time. It strikes me this is something that like we've known in fiction for a long time and somehow like seeing this play out in reality um I don't know like it just really struck me as a moment like of course this is someone that was going to come and and kill her and he didn't have a gun right it's 1920s but um this sort of connection between um his sort of jealous possessive rage and his um the way he treats her and then the fact that he ends up killing her so I don't know there was a moment here where this from the very beginning just felt very like a viscerally real mm-hmm. in a in a 2018 way just like it did back in a you know 1920s way yeah I mean I think there are a couple of things I 100% agree um I this book felt the most And I've said, I feel like we've said this, we've talked about this every episode, but this felt the most 2018 of all the books to me so far. Um, And also I did, I had the same sort of similar reaction that, um, well, of course this ex-fiance is going to come and kill her and ruin her life because he believes her life is his to ruin, right? Right. Um, But I kept thinking back to this question that we've brought up. Um, over and over about what Cressley's doing with the genre as she's writing. And one of the things that we've talked about so much recently and so much is in sort of the ether of romance right now is this um, question of how we talk about the books that began the genre, the flame and the flower, the Shanna, the, you know, early, early days of the genre. And the fact that Rape happens in those books, and often it happens at the hands of the hero in the early pages of those books. And, you know, I've written about this, and I've talked about this a lot, about what rape means on the page. But one of the things that so many of us who think about the genre as a whole hog, sort of as a, in, the, in the scope of romance, talk about is that rape is on the page in these books um, because rape happens to women as we know, and um, because there's no other place in media where women can have this conversation about assault happening and um, how we experience it and where we go from there. And it's really fascinating to me. I I kept coming back to that question of sort of Cressley's beginning with the assault at the hands of a man in that sort of old school way. And then the whole thing sort of blows up and starts over. And yet, and again, this, we're not going to talk about this yet. We'll talk about it in later episodes. Almost all of the characters who suffered prolonged sexual abuse in this series are men. Right. Cressley writes a hero at the hands of sexual abuse very well and very thoughtfully. So like you, this is something I'm really, really interested in this question of, and I think this is something the book is, I think it's also my theory about why this is like a hard one to read, right? Because she's, she's a victim and we don't read romance 
to feel victimized. Right. And but like Emma in A Hunger Like No Other, she's not a victim for long. She becomes a very, a very keen survivor. Um, So let's let me just I'll I'll just wrap up the we need to talk about the hero and then we can get deep. We do. I love I actually love this hero. I love this hero so much. This is so we're going to talk over the course of this about, you know, id in romance. And um, this is an id hero for me. Sebastian is a living vampire who was turned by um, his brother. Nikolai. Nikolai is the one who turned. He turned all the other brothers. Right. But okay. Mur- Murdoch, it seems, kind of agreed more readily to it. And Sebastian and Conrad are the ones who were furious. Conrad is a Roth brother. And you'll remember the Roth brothers from the second book in the series, No Rest for the Wicked, um, where Sebastian and Conrad and M- Murdoch, uh, the three three younger um, Roth brothers, are t- all turned into vampires by Nikolai. They're all about to die. They're in a war um, in the Ukraine or Estonia. in Estonia somewhere. Um, and they're in a war and um, they're all about to die. And their eldest brother um, is turned into a vampire and then given the opportunity to turn his brothers into vampires. And he does. One of them agrees pretty regu- readily and the other two resist it. And Conrad resists the most. And what we know from the old books is that Conrad has disappeared and they can't find him. And um, he is here. They find him in chapter one of this book. Um, and he is um, has essentially he is he has taken blood from the vein. Um, he is a mercenary, a vampire mercenary, um, which turns out he vowed to become in when he was 13 and human. He joined a. Um, a cult of sorts of people who um, were basically destined to kill vampires. They take a vow to kill all vampires. So Conrad has spent the last X number of hundreds of years killing vampires um, from the vein and demons and other things. He's a mercenary. And so, but taking from blood from the vein makes you crazy. You'd get you, if you kill someone, that way you inherit all of their memories and you go mad. You can't stop them from coming when they come. It's sort of this – it's really this, like, delicious what, – what Cressley has done is she creates this intensely broken hero. And he's deeply broken by virtue of owning all the memories and, act- and actions of every evil person he's ever killed. Right. Exactly. And I think one of the things that's – there's a couple of really fascinating things about, like, when they capture him – and one of them is um, he cannot believe that his brothers are trying to take him alive. Like he's pretty sure that what they're doing is that they're there to kill him because he's a mercenary. He's killed so many vampires. They're out to kill him. And so one of the things that's that like from the very beginning that this relationship with his brothers is so broken that he 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 just thinks I can't believe they're trying to take me alive. Like he thought, okay, this is finally it. We're going to fight to the death. And I just think that's fascinating. He wants the death. I mean, this is a he hates himself. He say he hates himself by virtue of being a vampire. I think there's certainly a, a no small amount of him that hates himself for the job that he has done all these years. And I think he he welcomes death. And um, but he doesn't get it because his brothers love him and their goal is to bring him back into the family fold, which we saw happen over the course of Bowen's book, Wicked Deeds on a Winter's Night, 
um, because the Roth brothers were also no, was it Bowen's book? It's the the Roth brothers were also trying to get the magic key that would take them back in time. Right. Um, so to to fix this exact problem, to bring back their sisters and solve their family woe, which we all know is never going to happen because they're a Russian family and you know Tolstoy. <laughs> but, okay. Now let's quote Anna Karenina, please. Because Tolstoy. <laughs> so. All unhappy families. No, that's who wrote Anna Karenina. Is that that's Tolstoy? Tolstoy? No. Yeah. All yeah. unhappy families are, are happy unhappy. in their own way. Are unhappy yeah. in their own way. So that all said, they they do take him alive, and it takes three strapping vampire brothers to do it, and it's pretty glorious. I can imagine Kate Gleborn like just. Digging deep on that page. <laughs> like, really excited about it. Yes. Um, and then she, they bring him to um, an abandoned house that happens to be on the outskirts of New Orleans. It's a great big mansion. Nobody's lived in it for 80 years. Um, or rather, people have lived in it, but then they've been, I don't know, haunted out of it. It's sort of a plot su- right. suggested. Um, it's a pretty dingy, like, broken down house. Has lots of the original fixtures. Like, as somebody who lives in New York City, like, crown molding seems to – there's a lot of crown molding, original hardwood. Sounds pretty great to me. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I wanted to live in this house. A-plus would risk haunting for this house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they attack – they chain him to a radiator. In the house, an old steam radiator, and um, they leave him there to dry out because he's basically an addict, right? I mean, there's this play on that addiction, like blood from the vein. He feels very um, addict. It feels very addicty to me. Well, and it's it's like both that and, and and insanity right and so there's been hints earlier because we've met other vampires that if you you know even a drop of someone else's blood means that you could harvest their memories but connor has been drinking the blood of hundreds of thousands of people and and the just the sheer like m- massive quantity of memories it, and and many of them from people that were themselves killers or rapists or, you know, terrible people means that he's he's essentially in, insane. Um, and I think one of the things can we talk about verb tense? Uh, I do want to talk about that. I just want to say one other thing about the about the addict piece, the sort of blood oh, yeah. piece. He says at one point, I you can't fix me. I'm unfixable to his brothers and one of them says I could fix you I could drain you and then I could drain you until you are empty and then essentially like fill you up with bagged blood um and there's no I don't think that there there, obviously that's not how he gets saved but I think there's an argument to be made that like we're also seeing the Roth brothers really struggle with their humanity because the instinct there is to say um you know, I don't want to, I, I, that's the easy way. Like we could just do that. You're immortal. You'll be fine. Interesting. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's Sebastian who says it. And then, but Sebastian's sort of like, I can't do that to you. Like I won't, I won't take that from you. I've already, like, we've already done enough to you. Right. And there's a real, a real sense that even though it's been hundreds of years that, and, and Conrad can't see this, Naomi can, right. That they're on a mission to get his forgiveness, right? That they see this act of helping him 
or of like fixing him to be one of restitution, right? We brought you this low, but we can also be the ones to bring you back up. Yeah. And I think also now that now that we're talking about it, now that we're in it, humanity, it makes sense that we meet our first human in this book because well, I guess technically we have met humans before because we've met the Roth brothers. And the truth is that they are all they all struggle with their humanity. Um, if, and that's that's their whole story. So maybe it makes sense that Naomi and Conrad are the match that they are. Right. Like the earlier Roth brothers have Valkyrie mates, right? Because they're, well, part of this is like a, a session driven, right? Like we're going to see this new, um, these two groups that were enemies become, you know, but Conrad's not going to be blooded by a Valkyrie, right? He, he's, he needs something different. Yeah. And I, and, yeah. And there's this real sense that he, again, it's that sort of perfect partnership that happens here because Naomi is deeply lonely. I mean, oh. broken and lonely. She is – we meet her in real time um, standing at the edge of the property because she's because she's a ghost. She is bound by the – she's bound to the house and its property. And there's a newspaper that's been delivered and it's been delivered, you know, three feet or four feet outside of the property line. And she wants that newspaper so desperately because – she just wants some touchstone to the world. And he is so lonely, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and I think the thing about about both of them, but about Naomi especially, is like we've talked about how many of these early heroines are really, really almost more like archetypes, right? Like Katerin's all about like emotion and and Mariketta's all about power and, you know, there's this thing we joke about, like, I just want to be seen. Naomi literally has not been seen for 80 years. And that, like, that desperation to to not be invisible anymore as a woman, I mean, I just found it. I, I, I understand why people don't love her, I guess, theoretically, but I found her to be, you know, almost painfully and beautifully sort of relatable yeah and (laughs) you know I don't get it I don't I don't even intellectually get it because I think she's so real like I feel like Cressley sets it up where she's been alone for so long and not just alone so on top of all of it she once a month has to relive her death yeah right so it's not just now I'm alone and I have to deal like I have to come to terms with being alone and like sometimes I get the paper and sometimes I don't and like this is just my life now my my existence now she has to relive the moment of that began this loneliness every month at the sliver moon which I know you want to talk about which we'll hold off on talking about like I do Sarah you know what though okay but even more than the moon thing though I I would like to talk about it's almost like this ghostly menstrual cycle, right? I mean, oh, it's God, like yeah. think about what a, what is a woman going through once a month. It's like this reminder that you could give birth, you could be alive, and to and the for cycle her, of the moon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And for her, Look at you it's, English teacher, I can't help myself. <laughs> but for her, it's this anti. It's this no, you're dead, and you're gonna relive your death. There's no. 
life in you. And, and that's what you're going to go through every month. And I found that again, to be like really poignant in a way that, uh, you know, I just found as like, I don't know, as a woman, right. Like I just found her, um, like all that being taken away from her to be so kind of profoundly, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I keep being like, oh, because I like lack the words to describe like just how how moved I really was by by her loneliness, but also this, um, I mean, just desolation that she really lives in, right? And I think um, the 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 other thing that I, I want to bring up here, and I think this is a good place to do it, is that. This is the first of the books where we see children as a dream, where we see, and and I mean, I hadn't thought about this moon cycle thing, and I, yeah, wow, because I feel like we, this is the first of the books where we start to talk, where we hear, like, I always dreamed of being a mother, right? Mm-hmm. Cressley, until now, we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that sort of desire for progeny. Um, and then there is a moment eventually where Conrad says, like, well, would you you would want them with me? Like, I'm so yeah. I'm so broken. I'm such a monster. And she's like, no, of course I would want them with you, you idiot. And like, <laughs> but this idea of um, and I and I marked it because I had this moment where I was thinking, like, maybe immortals don't necessarily want kids so readily because. Again, it goes back to this sense of like they understand the weight of immortality. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating. So in some ways, it doesn't surprise me that the two characters who like most openly consider it are are those who are the, like are the most alone, who are most cut off from the rest of the world. Like to them, to like, it's really about forming a family, right? And it's not like they have, I mean, you know, he has his brothers, but like forming a family um, just means something different to these two characters than I think it does to other characters in the lore who are so familiar with like their place in this much larger structure. These two are alone in every way. And it's really remarkable how it's how it's put together. Um, and I think that Cressley does this it's it's almost insidious how she does this um, with the way the craft of this book is so perfect. It's so fucking good. Like she's she's so good, you guys. She's so I, I mean, we started this podcast because we love these books and we said like they're so fun. There's it's such a bonkers like bananas read, and it's just it's exactly what we need in 2018, 2019. Like the world is on fire. But like you guys, this is a master class in how to write a book. Yeah, it really is. Well, and so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I will say I have I have strong feelings about books. <laughs> extreme feelings about tense I do have extreme feelings about tense in books and actually it's I have extreme feelings about other things in books but in romance I have already extreme feelings about tense because I feel that um verb tenses mean something I mean I don't know crazy idea now there are going to be people who disagree with me and I get that right like yeah we're gonna get this is the episode we're gonna get hate mail about yeah and that's fine like I I, you know what I also feel really comfortable with my opinions and I'm not trying to convince anyone because really what I'm trying to do anytime I have really strong feelings I'm always trying to figure out like what are they rooted in right I don't really think of myself as like a knee jerk I hate this thing right but I do think that 
you know, fiction has existed for a really long time. And the rules that govern how we tell stories have existed for a really long time. So if you're going to break those rules, I'm kind of curious about why. Now, I have really strong negative feelings about first person present tense. I just find it, I I personally find it really um, exhausting to read. Like I just get really... And and I think part of it is I just find I'm like, like, I just want out of that person's brain. But I'm also it really um, it makes me think like, is this the way people really think about the world in their day? I mean, fiction's always a construct, but I don't walk around narrating to myself what I'm doing. I just don't. So I find it really hard to read characters who are doing that because I it, it like the the veil of um like getting swept away in their story. It's like a constant reminder. Like it just, I can't do it. Whatever. <laughs> like I could go on and on about this forever. Kate Claiborne right now is like, I hate you. Cause she is like my polar opposite. She loves it. And she does it really well. Kate's going to join us for an episode in the future. So what's interesting though about this book is there's no first person, but when we get Conrad's narration at the beginning, it's all in present tense. And when we get Naomi's point of view, it's all in past tense. And to me, I'm totally down with this because it makes narrative sense, right? Like she is literally stuck in the past. There is no like present for her. And he, because he's just like riding the waves of people's memories that he's captured, he has no sense of anything, but like he has no past. It's just like what he's experiencing right now. And he even questions that. And so I found myself really fascinated by like this really purposeful way that Cressley is using like verb tense to communicate something about worldview. Who are these characters right now? And, and, and how are they thinking about themselves? And, and what does that mean about how they're like missing each other? Right. Because the first time he really sort of like sees her, she like jolts him back into like what I'm going to call like a regular narration. Right. And it's actually in the, in the book, right. He's like feels he's like, yeah, it's page um, 86 of the book. I feel like it's important that we cite this moment. It's page 86 of the book, and he is chained in the shower. Right. And um, she it's the first moment that they really acknowledge that they each other exist, that they can see each other. Yeah. And she comes to him, and she sees him, and she's like, you can see me. She's She is so floored by the idea that, like, the inkling that she's had that he can see her has finally come to fruition and she he can actually see her and she um she they talk about what he they they have this like sort of they have this verbal sex essentially where they talk about what he would do what they could what they would do to each other what he would do to her if he could touch her because he can't she's she's air right right um, and he essentially cages her against the wall, the, the, sh- the sort of vision of her. He cages her against the wall and he is and he tries to touch her and and he can he can feel the energy of her, but he can't feel her. And then he says he I'll, I'll read it to you. He says, as if a breeze had swept a path through the fog of memories and confusion, he feels clearer as he beholds her face. He feels centered, feels, feels, 
felt. He felt clearer. Conrad felt centered. And for the rest of the book, it's past. And and this to me is like why I, I have to say like break all the rules you want. But at some point as a reader, I want to know why you're breaking those rules. And if you're just breaking them to break them, then I like then you can do that. Right. Like I, I you're not the boss of me, Jen. No, of course. Right. <laughs> Authors can do whatever they want. But I, I find it pretty tedious, like personally. Right. And I tend not to read a lot of it. And that's OK. Like that's again, as, as a reader. And I know plenty of people who are like, I don't even notice that. <laughs> and that's fine, too. Right. Like everyone has their own thing. But it was really interesting because I'm going to now bring up a non-romance. Um, I was, I was, uh, I saw an author I really like of literary fiction, and he writes essays. His name's um, Kiese Lehman, and he wrote a book called Heavy. It's a memoir about, uh, essentially, about ble- being black in America and his struggle with weight. But it's not just like his physical weight; it's like the weight of all his memories. And at the beginning of the book, in the prologue, he talks, he's like interviewing his grandmother and his mother. And there's this part where he talks about why he, he asks his grandmother why she told so many of her stories in present tense. And she says to him, and it's this amazing, this book is amazing, right? Not a romance. And she says, this land, he, we work too hard on this land to run. Some of us, we believe the land will one day be free. I've been eating off this land my whole life. Greens, tomatoes, cucumbers, collards, you hear me? That's all I can tell you. As far as these stories, I just try to gather up all the gumption I can before I take it to the Lord. And when I tell it to my children, sometimes I just be trying to put y'all where I've been. Oh, wow. And it's amazing. That's and incredible. I thought, and, I, and this is the thing, I'm like, here's a reason, right? Like, there's this reason that I find really compelling to, like, play with, like, play with language, right? And to me, it's most meaningful. And it, again, people, every author, I please do what you want and what feels right to you. But the, when it is most meaningful to me as a reader is when it's telling me something about your characters, And this is why I think it's so brilliant in this book, right? Like Conrad goes from having only the minute he's in to having like a, a sense of who he is, like a centered self when he's with her, even though at that moment, she doesn't even really exist for him. The idea of her is enough to like bring him his own self into the world. And I think it's really powerful. Sure. And it makes perfect sense why it's there too. It's this sense of like, You know, we talk about there are moments in our lives where we can mark their their time posts, right? And they we mark before and after. And for Conrad, it's forever before and after Naomi. Prior to that, it was before and after he was turned. turned. Right. And now he has something else. And what he has instantly is something to live for, right? Which is a deeply like it, okay, I get it. It's it's problematic in real life. Like, don't ever marry this guy. <laughs> but <laughs> but right. in fiction, in romance especially, this idea of a hero who was nothing and now – or felt that he was nothing and now feels that he is everything and must be everything for her is real great. <laughs> yeah. I am well, here 
for I, it. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I think it also is a larger hint about how immortals face their immortal lives, right? Like, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, like the weight of time. I mean, so like that whole like package of time that was like Conrad and misery has now over. Yeah. And it's because of this moment with her that so profoundly changed him. Yeah. And also one other thing I would say. So the tense thing does not bother me at all um, as a reader. I'm, this this is not a thing that wor- that worries me ever. Um, but I will say that on this re- – one, I did not remember this tense experience from the original read. And on this read, I didn't notice it until this moment, which Interesting. is real bonkers, right? Because – for me, not to notice something like this on a what I'm trying to do as a close read, it feels like it, in that moment when I got to that pa- that line on page 86, and I had I had I sort of stopped and thought, wait, what is what does that line mean? <laughs> and then I realized what she'd done, and I just sort of sat and stared into space for a little while and felt bad about myself. <laughs> I well, I, you know it's interesting. I listened to this one. I'd read it the first time, and then I listened to it on audio. Oh yeah, how's that? Oh, it's great. But how's this moment? Well, I I was not as surprised because when he's narrating Conrad, and you you hear when someone's speaking and the verb tense changes, I think you hear it differently. Mm. So I was really tuned into like, oh, Conrad sort of stuck in the present. And then, like, that moment when he switches over, um, it's very, like, weighty, right? Like, it's, like, like those ellipses, he really, like, drags yeah. them out. Well, that's Petkoff for you. He's just good at his job. Of course he is. So, I mean, I think the writing of this one, I think it's really spectacular. But I also think this is really a book where, um, I don't know if you remember when we read, like, the no rest for the wicked we talked about like okay this is a book that's really setting up the players but not necessarily the plot i think this book is the opposite right like this is a book that's laying a lot of groundwork for Mm -hmm. the future books for the plot of the accession and in some ways i do think it could be a bit of a distraction like there are entire chapters that are away from conrad and naomi which i don't think that happened in previous books no it didn't and i noticed it too and I think you're 100% right. I actually had a moment, this is a purely like writer as writing as career moment in my head where I was like, I wonder if she got like a big contract for this book. Like, I wonder if it was like, this is the first of five books or like, you know, Pocket had signed on for lots more of them because I feel like suddenly we're starting to see real groundwork laid for way in the future. Um and, and I wondered that th- that same thing, honestly. Yeah. And I mean, who knows? Maybe. And but the what's interesting about it is the the secondary characters are all very richly included. So Bowen and Mariketta are right there at the very start. Um, Mariketta is essential to the arc of the plot here. Oh, yeah. Um, which is really interesting because I had I started to have this really um, I started to think that perhaps what we were seeing was, um, and I don't know because I'm I'm trying not to read too far ahead of the podcast, um, but I think what we may start to see is now we've she's layered enough immensely powerful characters into this these stories that um, they're going to have to come back in order to solve some of these immense conflicts. Um, so, Mariquette and Bowen are back. The Caden Rydstrom 
crown conflict, which we start to see in separate chapters over the course of this book, I agree with you. It starts to feel almost too much, but then she so seamlessly knits it back to Conrad's conflict because he's being chased by a dream demon. Yes. Right? And um, and there's all this kind of back and forth thing about he's he's drunk the blood of somebody who has information that Rydstrom needs for future book. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it's just there's so many little pieces. Like, this is where the murder wall really started to happen for me. Yeah. Although, you know what I will say? Here's here's thematically, I think, the way it worked is there's this one great scene where Nyx essentially gets Kadion and Rydstrom and it's sort of like, what do you two jokers want? Do you want your crown or do you want your faded mates? <laughs> and these two dubbies are like my crown. And meanwhile, like right on the other hand, you have Conrad who's like, I just want Naomi and I don't care about anything else. Right. And I think in that sense, I think that's like kind of a powerful moment where you get Nick's literally like, I've never she lays actually, it out for her. Yes. Them. And I, but I've never also had a book like actually like roll its eyes at me. <laughs> and you could totally see her being like, you chuckleheads, like you are doing this wrong. Well, you also start to see, I mean, Nyx is really beautiful in this, in oh, this yeah. book. She's, she's been around obviously for the last few books and she will be around for many, many more. But like this book, I feel like we're starting to see Nyx in like her fully formed like Valkyrie awesomeness. Regan too is with her. Um, for several scenes and she's you know at one point she says she wants to lick Rydstrom's horns and like <laughs> ultimately we will discover that like demons and their horns are like a whole thing um, and she's just so and she's always wearing like funny t-shirts and she just everything about her is so like brash and awesome and at the same time you this is the book where we start to really see that Nyx is the is going to be the pin that holds it all together. Absolutely. And interestingly, I had a moment. Uh, there's no Lothair. There are no mentions of the other vampires. Nope. In no, this. this is very um, insular and sort of isolating, right? Like, just, you know, they're, and part of that is because Naomi and Conrad are really stuck together in this house, literally. Well, Naomi can't leave, right? So... And he can't either because he has some witched. Which <laughs> he he's witched. He's witched. He has some witched handcuffs on. <laughs> so many handcuffs in this book. And also, well, we're going to get to like a book four for four for somebody losing their goddamn limbs. <laughs> um, he dislocates his shoulder, right? To get himself out of the... He cuts off his own hand, Sarah. Oh, God, he does. It. I forgot all about that. <laughs> He does. He chops off his he not just cuts it off. He chops it off with like yes. an axe. Yes. Because he is like, wait, it's my favorite moment in the book because, OK, it's like he looks down. Right. And he just thinks obstacle like this is an obstacle. I need to get out of these chains so I can get my woman and we can get going out of here or whatever. And he like cuts off his own hand, not realizing that she has the key and has been hiding it from him. <laughs> It's really an amazing moment. It's magnificent. And then he's really an asshole because he's like, 
how dare you? You made me cut off my hand. Like, no, you're an idiot is what happened. The scenario that you have just painted is fully wrong. No one asked you to axe your hand off. I know. Like, the drama, like, the drama of that moment. And interestingly, that's kind of, that's the moment, right? Where Naomi's like, fuck you, I'm out. Yeah, and I loved, and so it's funny because we've talked about a lot of this, but I, she really, this is, I think, the part where she comes into her own, right? And there's this thing where she basically said, like, I never thought I'd be the type of woman to choose harsh words over, because I couldn't stand being alone. And she's basically, like, by vampire, and she just, like, floats away to her secret hiding place because she's, like, I'm not putting up with your bullshit. And then she does literally, and in her secret hiding place, she summons Marichetta, who gets her the hell out. Yes. this That's the moment where, so, okay, that's the moment where Marichetta, um, she brings Marichetta through the mirror, um, and then they have a conversation, and she's like, I want to be human. I want, I want to be human. And Marichetta, and this, here's another reason why I love Naomi. This is the moment where, um, and Marichetta, again, just as Nick said to the demons, like, what do you want? Marichetta said, I, I can do this for you, right? I can make you human, but I can only embody you for a certain length of time. It yeah. could be a day. It could be a year. But that's it. Like, it won't be longer than that. You, I can't tell you how long you have. All I can tell you is that if anybody ever finds out who or how we did this, you're done. Like, it, that's your last day. And and I love that Naomi's basically like worth it, right? Like I've been living in this. It's not even a half life. Exactly. Like it's this this nothingness. I I want to, like I want this last chance to be human and then to like really die. Like that's worth it to her. And I think it's again this really fascinating look at like we've talked so much about immortality, but here's someone facing mortality. And she is like really knows what she's doing and she makes this decision. And I think um, I think it's a really spectacular moment, both because we understand um, like in some ways, like we got that she was lonely. But this is when you're like, oh, shit, you were lonely. Yeah, because they basically say to her and we don't know what happens to you. Like there's no we're not sure like where you go or what becomes of you. All we know is that you'll no longer be here and you'll never be here again. Yeah. And I think in some ways this is why, you know, I understand that she's not like a Valkyrie type of heroine. But to me, so far, this has been one of the greatest moments of bravery in the entire series. Of course, because it's such a moment of agency, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the Valkyries have their, the Valkyries are amazing on so many levels for so many reasons, right? Largely probably reason one for me is their deep loyalty to each other. Naomi doesn't have a deep loyalty to each other to fall back on. Her loyalty has to be to herself. And she sees a chance to seize identity for one night or one week or one year, however long it is. And she takes it. And it's magnificent because it's pure agency. It for for a character who on page one loses her all agency, right? Exactly, and I love that it's another woman who helps her, right? Like I, there was something really powerful for me in this moment that 
like like Mariketta that all the women in these books are so powerful, but like that when they need help and support, it's like they turn to other women. And I, I don't know, like, I just think like, it's really, it's this really, it, it was amazing. It, it blew me away. While we are on the subject of Mariketta, I want to just draw attention to the climactic bits of this book, which I actually thought were the climactic bits of the pat of the last book. Oh, like, interesting. So I had this moment while I was reading, um, dark no (laughs) winter winter wicked deeds on a winter's night where i got to the end and there's the climactic scene where mariketta is trapped in the mirror and they say to bowen don't stand in front of her because she'll incinerate you and i thought to myself like oh well that's obviously what happened in in, (laughs) when i when i was recollecting that book i was convinced that that was the climactic scene that he stands in front of her and she burns a hole in him in fact it happens here it's like b plot here yes right and what i and this is why i was like this cressley has a plan for this series that is immense and remarkable and i just want like the hbo miniseries i want the hbo show the like six seasons of this show because (laughs) yes when bowen stands in front of mariketta in that moment and he says something like you know this is gonna hurt like hell or something (laughs) it's this magnificent moment where you are reminded it's that pure romance novel pleasure right where you're reminded of how much you were rewarded in the last book by the love between those two people yeah. And I mean, I do this all the time as a writer. I like, you know, send a couple dancing by in the background for readers who, you know, maybe miss them. And I do it intentionally because I love I love the moment as a reader, but I also know that my readers are looking for it. And I didn't realize how much I was looking for it in this book until that moment where he does it. And then later they like wander they come in and he's bleeding like he has like holes in him he's bleeding and then he says like you're done with mirrors for yeah right (laughs) right exactly well and I think yeah I mean I loved that I loved it so much I mean I think the other thing like I would love for us to talk about the fact that Conrad was a virgin yes that's on my list too especially because Naomi is not again we have a a heroine Cressley gives delivers us a heroine who is like deep, like super into sex, like mm-hmm. yeah. likes it. Thank you. And flat out was like, if I'd give anything for modern birth control, I would have done way more damage back in the twenties. <laughs> and I was like, girl, I like loved that moment. Cressley's dealings with birth control over the course of all of her books, not just IED, but also um, yeah, uh, game makers are really I'm. I think she does it really incredibly well, really thoughtfully, and also just, like, super badass. Like, birth control oh, yeah. exists. We should all be on it. Like, yes. you should get to have sex, and that's that. Yeah, it's fantastic. I made a joke once on um, Twitter about how, <laughs> like, there, there's, like, a subset of romance readers who really love a virgin hero. And, I, and it's, like, not really my cat. It's not my kink at all. Like, I don't care. It's fine. But I joke about, like, you know, some of you all love breaking in the ponies. <laughs> and that was <laughs> – and I was, like <laughs> – 
Oh boy. <laughs> and meanwhile, if it was like the opposite and someone made that joke about like breaking in a woman, I'd be like, um, come over here so I can light you on fire. But it is, it's really <laughs> interesting that Conrad views his state as being something like shameful to be embarrassed by. Right. And, and it's, I, and I think that's also just like a really interesting moment where like virginity when it's in women it's it's prized right like it's like of course you're in this state of purity but like how jacked up it is and I think Cressley's like showing us that right like it's like this little hand she reveals that for a man to be a virgin though is like this like shameful embarrassing thing like it's all a construct and it's a construct on both ends Mm -hmm. and of course once they actually start having sex he's like Fucking great at it, it. of course, (laughs) right? Of course, like, just like, you know. And for no reason. So, I mean, we are going to do a whole episode on The Player, which is my favorite of the Game Maker series, and I have a lot, a lot to say about that book. But (laughs) I will say, like, the hero of that book spends, like, a full year studying sex to be great at it. Hilarious. Con- Conrad's just awesome at it. He's just awesome at it because he is. You know what I'm, I loved is like, remember when you were talking about Lachlan learning to drive? Well, he's preternaturally he- strong. Yeah. And-, <laughs> and that's what I was thinking about, like, Conrad and the fucking. He's just preternaturally talented at yeah. this activity. Just, Bless. This is his, this is his secret <laughs> It's his like skill. <laughs> It's like if you grow up in Montana and you just like discover you have this affinity for fly fishing, right? Like he's just so gifted at this. Lucky which is, girl Naomi. Which is great. It's just great. But actually great. my favorite moment of virginity in this book is at the very when they first reveal it and there's a yeah. back and forth and it's his brother and he oh. and he so Conrad is just, let me paint a picture. Conrad is strapped to a bed. Because he can't, like, anytime they chain him to anything else, he pulls it out of the wall. So he's strapped to the bed, and um, he can see Naomi there, but he's pretending not to see her because he's not 100% certain he's not crazy. Right. Um, And so he, and she's just standing there watching them because she doesn't think he can see her. And there's a back and forth, and Nikolai says, but did you, but you know but aren't you and conrad's like don't say it don't say it don't say it but he can't like articulate he can't say like because there's a lady here watching us and Nikolai's like but aren't you a virgin (laughs) and naomi's like dead i know i know and she's like right on i'm gonna take care of this for you we'll figure it out (laughs) oh Yeah, I mean, so I don't know. I thought that was, like, also really interesting because Sebastian, of course, was, like, like only had been with a few women, right? Yeah, but because of war. Right, right. I exactly. mean, that's an okay reason. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, and so I, it was, is like, a really interesting way that this, like, gets turned on its head, too, right? Like, she's the one who's sexually experienced, and he is the one who's a virgin, and... And he's, she's so chill about it, too. She's like, oh, you're a virgin? Okay. Like, well, what would you do with me? Let me get my, let me get my clothes off. Tell me, let me get in the shower with you. Tell me yeah. what you would do with me. Yeah, it's super pretty, sexy. It's pretty great. It and then great. the moment, I mean, we also, this is the second time we've seen a vampire blooded. 
Um, yes. And I do love a blooding. I'll yeah, me it. too. Me too. Like, I don't know. I think I'm going to say it and it might be controversial, listeners, but I think I prefer a blooding to a werewolf moon mating. I am going to agree with that. All right. I think that's I yeah I, I think I'm I'm down with that. If if you if you have opinions about this, tell us on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I think the thing that um I here's the part that's also kind of interesting like back to like the this whole business with the the virgin and the there's a couple really funny moments where she's like, "Well, how many men have you been with?" They're playing essentially a game of like <laughs> truth or dare, right? And she's like, four. And he's like, that many? And then, like, she asks him how many people he's killed. And he basically is, like, thousands or yeah, hundreds or whatever. I can't remember. I can't remember. And she's like, wait, and you're judging me for, like, getting with these four guys? And Pretty I glorious. Just, right? It is really glorious. Well, there's also a moment where he says, are you a virgin? And she says, no, I'm a Capricorn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and he probably is like, what? Yeah. I love it. And I think the other thing that was like a really funny moment for me where um, at one point, both of them make the observation like she's like, why are men so angry when they're vulnerable? And, you know, and he thinks like, why are women when they're vulnerable? They just come out with their like claws, essentially. And 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 it's like this moment where you realize like it's and I want to say it's like human. I mean, he's a vampire. Right. But like like feeling angry and defensive when you're vulnerable isn't about gender right it's about being human and I think that's part of what's really interesting too is like like you said like he's discovering he's getting back in touch with his humanity sure and there's there's this magnificent moment right at the end so right in the climactic bits of the book where they bring her back as a phantom and they put her in a zombie body (laughs) and there's that whole discussion that she might come back wrong (laughs) Um, yeah, for the pet cemetery fans in the in the crowd, <laughs> um, and so he goes to the middle of a war zone to like find his brothers and like get them out of the witched cage. Um, and right. this is the, this is the only time that we see the other vampires because Kristoff is there and Kristoff lets them go right. Um, and yeah, he and so he goes to get his brothers and he says, "I've been blooded." I'm I've met the woman I love. She I need you to take me to every single cemetery in New Orleans right now because she's trapped. Like yeah. I need to save her. Yeah. So essentially Nikolai has been to every cemetery in New Orleans and so and they don't believe him. They don't believe Conrad. They think right. he's crazy. And Nikolai says, "All right, I'll do this for you." And he does it, and Nicol- and Conrad says, why would you do this? You don't believe me. And he says, because you came to me, and that means yeah. somewhere in you I'm still your brother. And I know. it's such a powerful moment because essentially it's Conrad getting his humanity back, not just via love, but also via family. Right. Um, and we've talked about this before with Cressley and found family and real family, but – it's a really powerful moment and it's it's what Conrad deserves. I think that's the thing I don't understand about people who don't love this book. I feel like this is the first one where I feel like these two people deserve happiness. Yeah. The, in a really profound way. And also the one where I really was like, 
even rereading, I was like, how's this going to work out again? She's a ghost. Well, there is a lot of like, now we need a witch. Now yes. we need a sorceress. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you know now what? Now you're a phantom. Don't ask us why. <laughs> and I, that's not a critique of Cressley, really. That's like a Nick's. Yeah. It's the it's that sort of perfection of putting. So if you're a comedy, if you've ever studied comedy writing, um, there's this concept in comedy writing, like half hour sitcom comedy writing, that if you create a character who is a dog, like you can basically have them do anything. And that doesn't mean like an actual dog. Dog is a metaphor. So it's like Homer Simpson can do basically anything. And we believe it because he acts like a dog, right? He's pure id. Um, Kramer is a dog. Joey Tribbiani is a dog. Right. Mm, Yeah. Like in this particular moment. Right. Nix is a dog in the sense that like. Right. She's just been set up to know whatever she knows and act however she acts. And so when she's like, you know, maybe you'll be a phantom. Maybe. We're like, oh, well, Nix would know. Sure. Sure. Well, and again, I think it's like the like at some point it's both like brilliant and also like sort of. I don't know, like world building wise, I wonder how people, so I don't care about world building at all. I actually, one of the reasons I prefer paranormal to fantasy is I have a pretty low tolerance for build world building. I get really overwhelmed by like the details. Yeah, same. And so I'm, I'm really happy to have like, oh, thank God there's this like magical character who just needs to know, every, who knows everything she needs to know. Mm-hmm. And oh, thank God there's Mariketta. She can just like fucking spell up anything she needs to spell and i i like that a lot but i wonder if people who really love fantasy find that to be like an unbearable shortcut probably but i don't care yeah (laughs) well and like i said that might be because i like that's why i like paranormal better than fantasy sure i just want them to get together and smooch that's what i want so like just just make it work i don't care (laughs) (laughs) And there it is. Sarah McLean on romance novels. Uh, well, you've heard me say this is why I find like television shows almost unbearable to watch. I'm like, you want me to sit down and watch 13 episodes of this freaking show and I'm going to get like them kissing once 45 minutes through episode 13. I know. <laughs> like, and they're like, no, it's such a slow burn. Shut up. <laughs> I'm like, I would like a faster burn. A slow burn has to be resolved in 360 pages or less. That's right. <laughs> in one day's reading, I could get the entire, I could get a lot more than a kiss, y'all. <laughs> but it is. And I, I find that, that to be, I think that's part of why I like reading books. Like, right? Like, I know it's going to, I'm going to get that whole arc. Okay. So here is the one thing. Um, that I know we're not getting to it until a million episodes from now, but I have to talk about Sweet Ruin every single podcast. Of course you do. It's fine. Um, Because I love it so much. But there is a moment um, in this where Nick says, brings up phantoms and says, but it takes hundreds or even thousands of years for a phantom to happen. Yeah. And it's such a throwaway line. And I was like, Oh my god! <laughs> if uh-huh. I had been paying close, if I had done a full reread before before yeah. Sweet Ruin, <laughs> I would have. Yeah, I would have seen that. So, um, I mean, it's just it's these little moments where you just start to see like the the layering of these books is really remarkable. I agree. 
Um, there was, can I just say, there was like one other thing though that I thought was really interesting, which is along with the building for like what's coming in future books, there are some references back to things that happened in previous books. So if you remember at the end of, um, No Rest for the Wicked, Riora gives Sebastian sort of a, like, right, a second chance to use the whatever the time turner thing whatever it's really called like right that they can go back to the past and change things the key the key thank you and i was like the time turner hello hermione thank well, you that's I fine know. we love Same the hermione thing. reference who doesn't but it's really interesting that in this one um conrad hears them talking like and and, and it's like maybe we're gonna have to use riora's gift but it's the brothers who are talking mm-hmm. and i thought that was really interesting like this and sebastian is so fully back in the fold with his brothers that he essentially discloses to them that he has you know this mystical item and they decide together presumably not to go back and save their sisters right but to hold on to it for potential future use. And I and I had not remembered that that sort of like came back up again. Well, you know, that's one of those moments where as a writer, I, I noticed that too. And, I, and as a writer, I was like, oh, that's just smart. Because you yeah. never know when you might have to get out of a hole. Yes. And a, right. And a time turner. <laughs> is a big. <laughs> Real useful. <laughs> oh, yeah. For sure. Um, right. And maybe Cressley has like, she probably does because she's so good at this. She probably has some like grand plan for that time turner. But um, I for sure would just put that on the, that's that's one gun that I would leave on the table. Oh, for sure. Um, right. For as long as it needed to be left. Yeah. But I like that she like mentioned again, right? Like, yeah, it's still there. And, and a couple yeah. people know about it. And you know, I hadn't, I haven't forgotten about this super powerful mystical item that's just like hanging out, waiting to be used. Right. So, um, I would say that this is the first of the books where, um, I would say you could read this book on its own, but this is probably the last. You could start the series here, is what I'm saying. Yeah, this I think is probably so. the last book where you can start. Yeah. Without it starting to get real real complicated. Yeah, I would agree. And that's because, as we said, she uses this um, experience, she uses this book to really set up the next four or five. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and to that end, we should talk about what the next one is. We should. Two weeks from now, Dark Desires After Dusk, book five. Um, and it is Caden Wode, our first demon. So can I can I give you a Robert Peckhoff pronunciation guide? Oh here? yeah, oh please. He's saying woeed. Oh really? I know. And I was like, okay, it sounds like they're like. Well, I mean, I think Cressley and Robert are friends. I mean, they have to. I'm be sure. At this point, right? I'm sure they like talked about it, right? Woeed. Woeed. And I and I thought it was really interesting because that in my brain I had also been saying like woed. So woeed. Yeah, the woeed. I wonder where at some point in the middle of the night I'm gonna wake up and be like, I wonder if she means this. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I, wonder, right? I wonder what that pronunciation means. Okay, so um it's Caden Woeed, our first demon. He's a rage demon, um, which is fun. I also love the demons because they're more fun. 
than everyone else. Oh, absolutely. The demons. All the demons in this series are super fun. Oh, speaking of, I want to talk about somebody on Twitter, you guys. And the Faded Mates Twitter account uh, reposted this, and we'll put it in show notes. But somebody on Twitter brought it to my attention that you can get specialized ringtones with Robert Peckoff doing... um, the like most fun IAD characters, including DeShazer, who is like a rando demon who uh, <laughs> doesn't I know. even have his own book, but is super delightful. He is super delightful, yeah. Um, and who I have like a whole like basically, if I were the kind of person who had the time to write fan fiction in the IAD universe, I would totally write about DeShazer, who's got to come fairly soon, I would think, um, if he's that famous. Yeah, I th- well, I think he shows up in a, quite a bit in in like Sweet Ruin and and like maybe he's just like in the ending book, so he's more recent in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the only options are Rune, Lothair, and DeShazer. I don't think any of the other heroes have ringtones, so it came later in the game, but yeah. they're awesome, and we'll put links in the show notes for you. Um, I've already set Jen's ringtone on my phone to that, but Jen doesn't call me very often, so that's a bummer. You should call gonna, me more. Now I'm gonna, I'm like, obviously, the <laughs> minute we stop recording, I'm going to be like, ring, except it's going to be like Rune being like, hello, Dove. <laughs> that is exactly what it is. It's Rune saying, answer my call. It's Rune. Anyway, but that all said, we're meeting the demons. The demons are super fun. Um... Because they're, they like, have, first of all, they're not like worried about their mates really because they can have sex as much as they want. Basically, the way a demon finds their mate is they just like keep trying them. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of awesome. It is an attempt. It's called an attempt. It's, called. it's pretty delightful. And um, Holly Ashwin, who is human for all right. intensive purposes. Right. As far as we know. Mm hmm. Um, and that's delightful. And what we know, if you've been reading along, the last one of the final chapters of this book is K is um Caden outside Holly's house watching her, knowing that she's his mate, but choosing not to go to her. Right. Well, and remember, right, like we've get that. That's like one really important scene, right? Is they've made this decision to prioritize getting back Rydstrom's crown. And, you know, they get some some hardcore side eye from Nix. But the other thing is, as Cadian has, he thinks he's killed Naomi, right? Remember? Oh, right. And so there's the scene where he, and, and what Nix tells Rydstrom is, like, if you tell him that he has to go forward thinking that he's done this, this, like, decision tree, all, like, this is where it splits. And you have to tell him that she doesn't survive. And so the way that, um, like, sort of Naomi's story kind of gets, like, kind of carried forward into the lore is she's officially part of the lore now that she's a phantom. But, like, this moment where her her body is killed, which was going to happen all along, right? Like, it was inevitable once the spell was cast Kadion is the one who carries that guilt forward and even though everybody else knows that she lives or like right has been brought back he doesn't and I like you have been trying not to read ahead because I don't want to like sort of spike spike the ball inadvertently right and so I'm really curious to see like why it has to play out that way but that's also the sense of these books being like really tightly interwoven now like with each other yeah this is why I think 
if you are going to start with us and you haven't started yet, now is the time. Also, why are you listening to this podcast if you haven't read these books? It's the dulcet tones of our voices in their ear holes, Sarah. <laughs> it is. Well, we're done with your ear holes today. Um, we are. I'm Sarah McLean, and you can find me at uh, Sarah McLean everywhere. Yeah, and I'm Jen Prokop. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Reads Romance. Um, on Instagram at Jen Reads Romance CHI because the other Jen Reads Romance on Instagram is Jennifer Porter on Twitter. It's all very confusing. Um, and my website, uh, Jen Reads Romance.com. And uh, you can find Faded Mates at Faded Mates on Twitter at Faded Mates Pod on Instagram. Send us, tag us on Instagram if you take pictures, if you're reading along. We want to see what you're reading. We want to see your, like, if you're highlighting or marking. We we love marginalia here at oh, Faded Mates. Do. So um, take pictures and we will repost them on our Instagram account um, with giving you all due credit um if you are really enjoying don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform whatever it may be we like overcast over here but whatever we take all kinds um don't forget to like us review us and so also if you, if there's anything that comes up as you're reading and you want us to talk about it let us know and maybe we'll find an expert to come and talk about it Have a great night, everybody, and we'll see you next time on Faded Mates. So I am going to say this one thing. We are actually going to be interviewing an expert on moon science because I have many complaints and many questions about how the moon is portrayed in these books i have absolutely no complaints i know you don't i wouldn't complaints is maybe a strong (laughs) word i complaints makes me sound insane and it's not complaints right i i have questions and i have observations and our friend uh jamie green actually hooked us up with someone who is like an expert on moon science and we're gonna have do like a real quick interview with her and i'm gonna ask her all my questions and we're all just gonna be learning together to be better observers of the moon but I think we're probably going to save that one for the next werewolf book. Yeah. So we will um, try to hold it together until then with our excitement about moon science. Um, But we're excited.